Well, with that said, would you open your Bibles tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel 19, and it's a rather curious chapter, at least in the back end, and you'll find out what I mean when we arrive there uh, later this evening. But I'll remind you, since it's been a couple of weeks, the last time our title was a bit unique, although it wasn't unique as far as the biblical precept goes. And if you remember, our title was Better Off Dead, and the biblical precept simply was denying self, being dead to self, and walking uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and controlling, therefore, our flesh and the desires thereof. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, that this is a necessity when he told his disciples, if anyone, say anyone, anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, we're reminded to let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem who? Others better than himself. Let each of you not uh, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, King Saul obviously had no grasp of either of these concepts, for if you remember, when the maidens of the city met the returning armies of the Lord, they broke out in a song as they danced along the road that was very discouraging to Saul. And they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And we're told from that point on, Saul began to eye David with the eye of jealousy. And he began to plot and plan how he could kill the next king, who was indeed his replacement. Now, his first effort wasn't exactly subtle. David was playing soothing music for him, and he threw his javelin at him and tried to pin him against the wall twice. Then Saul feigned making good with the reward he had offered for whoever slayed the giant, that is Goliath, in that he would give them his own daughter in marriage. And he told David, I'm giving you my oldest daughter. And when the time came for the two to be married, he had actually given her, he being Saul, to another man. Now, after this, Saul found out that his daughter, Michael, was indeed in love with King David, or David at that point. And this pleased him greatly. So Saul said in his mind, great, I'll give Michael to him because she's going to be a snare to him. Obviously indicating she might have been a bit of a problem child, so to speak. Now, he promised Michael to David and said, you can have her without dowry, but... What I do require instead of a dowry is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And this would replace for David the massive price of a king's daughter's dowry. Now, obviously, his motive was hoping that in seeking to meet this, that David would be killed. And yet David didn't just go out and kill a hundred Philistines. He went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought them back and counted them out. The foreskins, that is, before King Saul. Now, this obviously raised the ire of the Philistines, but it also got Saul even more angry at David. Yet, because of this, chapter 18 told us in 28 and 29, thus, because of what David did with the Philistines, Saul saw and knew that David, uh, uh, the, the Lord rather, was with David, and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, and Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's what? Enemy. Continually. Now, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I would think that if you saw that the Lord was with someone, you might think about making them your friend rather than your enemy. But that wasn't how Saul's mind operated. Now, what we're going to see tonight is things actually go from bad to worse in the relationship between King David and Saul, even though there is a King Saul rather than David, even though there is a momentary respite of the animosity between Saul and his vile efforts to bring about David's demise. Now, the thing that really captured my mind as I prepared and studied for this chapter are the attributes of God that we often consider when we talk about him and his greatness and majesty. And I couldn't help but think of what was said of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 18, where we're told that he is the image, the Greek word is icon, he is the physical manifestation of the invisible God, the firstborn 
over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things consist or are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now, remember, in Jewish culture, firstborn didn't mean born first. It's actually a title. And it was equated to being the heir of the father. And Jesus was indeed heir of the father and thus equal to him in power and authority. This was a legal reality within Judaism. Now, what we're going to see in our text tonight is something rather interesting in the midst of all the skullduggery of Saul. And that is that God was in control throughout all these experiences that David had when Saul was trying to kill him. Do you know God is in control of your circumstances tonight, too? God is watching out for you this very evening and this very moment. And he will be tomorrow as well, for he never sleeps and he never slumbers. And he who watches over Israel watches over us as well because the Holy One of Israel is also the head of the church and he is the one whom we worship and serve. Amen? Amen. Now, what we're going to draw our attention to tonight and glean from our text by way of our title is simply, and here's our title, Our Omnipotent God. Our Omnipotent God. Now, my original title was The Omnipotent God, But I think we need to recognize he's not just some distant being that we throw prayers up to or don't have any action interaction with and just recognize that he is out there somewhere. He's our God. He's our all-powerful God. And we are his children. Now, we mention that God is all-powerful regularly, but we need to remember that he is all-powerful in the midst of our circumstances. He's not disengaged from us, but he interacts with us on a daily basis. I'll wait here. Now, Revelation 19.6 says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude is the sound of many waters and is the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God, what? Omnipotent reigns. Now, the word omnipotent means the all-ruling one. It means the absolute and universally sovereign one. It also means the all powerful one. Now this is who watches out for you and I. The one who does not allow the waters and rivers of life to overtake us, nor the flame of fiery trials to scorch us. Anybody here got any trials going on? A couple of hands went up. The rest of you just lied in church, so shouldn't be doing that. We've all got something happening, right? The devil is after us all. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm sure there's some here who feel like the end of one trial just signals the beginning of the next one. And they come like waves pounding on the seashore of life over and over and over. The trials just seem to never stop. Now, remember that at this point, as we already summarized, Saul had personally tried to kill David twice. He'll try a third tonight. He tried to have him killed by the Philistines. He gave a daughter to David and then took her back and married her off to another man. Then he gave him another daughter whom he thought and hoped was going to be a snare to him. And yet David escapes. And yet in the midst of all this, David is victorious in battle. David is held in high esteem by Saul's very servants. And all because David serves the omnipotent God, our omnipotent God. So... Let's glean some reminders about the all-ruling one, the absolute and universally sovereign one, the all-powerful one who has adopted us as sons and daughters, called us by name, numbered the hairs on our head, keeps our tears in the bottle, never leaves nor forsakes us, and he is the one who fights for us, and there is nothing too hard for him. Let's look at our omnipotent God tonight. You ready? Stand and read with me, please, from 1 Samuel chapter 19. We'll start with verses 1 through 7, but we'll cover the whole of the chapter this evening. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. 
And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoice. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. You may be seated. Now, in our vernacular, we might just say Saul ordered a hit on David. And you have to wonder if the motive wasn't more than simple jealousy of David himself, but also envy of how David was viewed by others. Now, remember, we're already uh, told in our text in our opening verse that Jonathan had a great love for David. And in 18.1, we were told when he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then we're told at the end of the same chapter that then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was, wherever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became what? Highly esteemed. Now, obviously, to disobey a king's command, even as his son, would bear great consequences, and those consequences being death. Yet the son, whose soul was knit to David's, and the servants who held David in high esteem, are commissioned by Saul to be the ones who would go out and kill David. Now, there had to be a little, I'll teach you guys to esteem someone more than me in this directive because of who he chooses to send out, his own son who loved David and his own servants who esteemed David. Now, Jonathan seeks David out and warns him, even after Saul had shown in chapter 14, that he was willing to kill his own son. If you remember that Saul put the the army under a foolish oath and said, nobody has any food, touch their lips until all my enemies, his enemies, not the enemies of Israel, are destroyed. Jonathan didn't know about this foolish oath. He was weary from battle all day. He dipped the end of his staff in a honeycomb and uh, ate of it, and his countenance was refreshed. Saul found out about it and said, this boy's going to die for breaking the oath that I had put him and all the army under, even though he didn't know about it. Even with that in mind, Jonathan still seeks David out. And he tells David what his father was thinking. Then he takes things even a step further and puts himself in even, even greater peril and harm's way when he says to his father, you're sinning. You're in sin for how you're acting against one who hasn't sinned against you. He says to Saul, he says to his father, why are you seeking to kill David when he's done no harm to you? He risked his life against Goliath, and you were glad when he killed him. Why are you seeking to shed innocent blood? We're told Saul, for the moment, heeded the wisdom and reasoning of his son Jonathan, and he swore an oath using the name of the Lord uh, of the Lord as validation that David will not be killed. Now, we need to remember something about David and Jonathan. They were men who loved God and loved God's word. And God's word said to them in Exodus 20:13, you shall not murder. And Jonathan is putting before his father, you are sinning by seeking to murder David. He's not an enemy. He's not a Philistine. He's one from our own people. And indeed, you are seeking to kill him without cause. Now, obviously, both, David, or both uh, Saul and Jonathan were aware of the sixth commandment, and yet Jonathan seemed to be the only one of the two who viewed it as a valid command of God. Saul issued a directive that was in direct violation of God's law, and thus Saul was not a man who obeyed God's word. Now the same thing happened when the apostles were commanded not to teach in Jesus' name, which remember that's the only name by which one must be saved. And their response to this directive in Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey who? 
God rather than who? Than men. Jonathan and the apostles refused to obey a human command that violated God's word. And the same should be said of you and I. We don't let the government tell us to be quiet about Jesus. The government tells us to be quiet about Jesus. We keep preaching Christ and him crucified no matter what they say. Amen? Now, after all, don't we serve the omnipotent God? Yes, we do. But what I want you to notice tonight is that Jonathan first told David of his father's plans. Then he called his father out for his sin in formulating the plans against David. Now, here's what we need to pay special attention to when we're going through our own times of trial and persecutions. Listen, the first of the three things to note tonight is this. The blessings of obedience are proof of God's omnipotence. The blessings of obedience are proof of God's omnipotence. Now, God's word said, you shall not murder. And it didn't mean anyone who likes and agrees with that command shouldn't murder anybody. It was a directive to all mankind. You shall not murder. Jonathan acted on God's word. For the moment, Saul repented because Jonathan acted on God's word. David came back into the king's presence as he had been in time past. Now, you and I need to remember Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, where thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where's the house that you will build me? And where's the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at what? At my word. Listen, our minds usually race to the magnificent when we think of the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful aspect of God's attribute. Our minds are going to immediately travel to the Red Sea. And see the parting of the sea and potentially two million Jews crossing over on dry land when Moses put his staff in the sea and the waters parted and then closed again over the pursuing army of Pharaoh. Our minds are going to go to the crumbling walls of Jericho and the very odd strategy that was given to Joshua to take the first city inside the land of promise to march around the city six times, seven times on the seventh day and then shout and the walls came tumbling down. This is the omnipotence of God, the all-powerfulness of God. Our minds are going to run to Gideon and think of his 300-man army and the battle he fought against the innumerable Midianites and won so God would receive the glory. But what we need to remember tonight is we can see God's power simply by obeying his word every single day in simple and practical ways. For Jonathan, the Bible said, thou shalt not murder. He said, Dad, you're in sin. You have no cause for killing David, and your killing David would not be a victim of battle. You would be a murderer, and you would be in sin. He used the word of God to buy a momentary respite for his friend that he loved as he loved his own self. Now, I want you to think about this tonight. As our point has been made, think about what our world would be like If everybody obeyed the commandments of God. Think about it. Think about what our world would be like if there was just one God that everybody worshipped. The Lord said, you shall have no other gods before me. He said, you should not make any images of me. He said that you should not take my name in vain. He said that you should remember a season of rest, even as I rested after creation. He talked about his own relationship with his creation in the first four commands and then he gave six commands that were the interactions or the lateral commands of how we deal with one another imagine if there was no angst between religions because everybody worshiped the true and living god that would be the jehovah of the bible imagine if nobody ever lied you can't do that i guess imagine if nobody ever lied no lying politicians Boy, election season would be an entirely different thing, wouldn't it? Think about it. If nobody ever stole anything, nobody ever murdered anybody, nobody ever coveted, nobody ever uh, bore false witness, would this world be a better place? Well, of course it would. Why? Simple obedience to God's words and the word and the blessings and benefits of having done so. You see, that's proof of God's omnipotent power. 
is when we obey his word and the blessings of obeying him come into our lives. To obey is better than, what did we learn already from Samuel? To obey is better than sacrifice or just ritual offerings. There are benefits for us. And when we see the word of God come to pass in our own lives, when the Lord says, don't do this and you'll see that, don't do this and you'll experience that, and we see that happen, that's God's omnipotence. That's God's power over all things happening in our world. Now, I don't think that what we just proposed is going to happen on a global scale. As a matter of fact, I know it isn't. Things are going in the opposite direction. I don't think there's any of the commands that there's any respect for by most of the world today. But the fact is, they can't happen on a personal level, and therefore our lives are going to be better if we seek to obey the commands of God. Now, anybody that's thinking legalism has gone down the wrong path. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about living a life with manifested power, even as we see presented here through Jonathan's effort to stay the hand, stay the hand of his murderous father. Now, let's keep looking at verses 8 through 17, and we'll find a second reminder about our omnipotent God. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. Saul, so David escaped that night, rather. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So when Saul's messenger messengers to take David, she said, Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, our verses are a pretty vivid reminder of the ugliness of envy as we see it again manifested on Saul or through Saul. Part of Saul's wrongful agreement that he might marry his daughter was that David go out and fight against Israel's enemies, which David did with great success. And we see it recorded here again. And Saul said to David, you can marry my daughter, but you have to go out and fight my battles. And they were truly uh, battles that belonged to the Lord. And therefore, David was the Lord's man to go out on behalf of the armies uh, against the Philistines. Now, David then defeats the enemies, and guilt, first of all, sweeps over Saul for not going out into battle himself. There was a time of year, as we know from David, that the kings were to go out for war, and when David stayed home from the season, he was supposed to be out leading the troops in battle. He fell into great sin himself, and this is what is happening with Saul. Saul should have been at the command. Saul should have been leading the troops into battle. David does. He has a great victory. The enemies flee from him. Envy sets in for the recognition that David receives for defeating the Philistines, even though Saul demanded that David go out and defeat the Philistines. Now, in 1 Samuel 13, 3 and 4, remember, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Who attacked the garrison? Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines. That was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that, who? Saul. Who actually attacked the Philistines? It was Jonathan. But all of Israel heard that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And all the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Now this is what Saul wanted from David. He wanted to take the credit for Jonathan's victory. He wanted David to go out and fight their enemies, but to give the credit to Saul. Now, is that a right way to do business? Well, obviously not. Now, we need to note something here where we see the distressing spirit mentioned again being from the Lord. 
Now, as we mentioned, God can command an evil spirit to do what God wants him to do. Right? I mean, just because there's a realm of fallen angels, just because Lucifer was fallen from heaven, as uh, the Lord even said, the Lord Jesus, I saw Lucifer fall from heaven. He is still under the directive of God, even though God has given him a long chain. I love what Pastor Chuck has always said when somebody would mention binding Satan. He would say, well, you know, if the Lord has bound Satan, he sure put him on a long leash. And he indeed is roaming the earth like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. But yet, God can command a loyal angel or a fallen angel to do his bidding and distress someone. Now the point is, is that God allowed this to happen. It isn't that each time Saul would mess up, the Lord would send a distressing spirit, but rather the Lord allowed this spirit to distress Saul and took advantage of any time that Saul fell into envy or jealousy. And as a result, Saul reverts to his former behavior, and he sought for the third time to pin David to the wall with his javelin. Now, his efforts to kill David this third time by his own hand then causes Saul to extend his efforts to incorporating other people into his deadly scheme by now sending a squad of hit men to David's house to kill him when he left for work in the morning. Now, Michael, again, who truly loved David, conspired with David to spare his life by letting him down through a window and placing her household idol, her teraphim, in the bed, and she disguised it to look like someone who was actually laying in bed sick. Now, when the messengers reported this to Saul, he said, hey, go get David, bring him bed and all to me, and I'll kill him. Now, this seems to imply that there was a hesitation on the part of the messengers sent to kill David, because Saul could have said, I don't care if he's sick, go kill him when he's laying in bed. But that's not what he said. He said, go get him, bring him, and I'll kill him myself. Again, it's seemingly implying that they were hesitant to do so. Now, if you were sent to kill somebody, if you were the hitman sent to kill somebody and they're laying sick in bed, that would be to your advantage uh, to take advantage of that moment and simply kill the person when they're unable to fight back. So again, underscoring the possibility that these messengers who esteemed David very highly were hesitant to follow the king's command. Now, when the messengers discover the deception of Michael, Saul confronts his daughter at some point for allowing his enemy to escape. And Michael lies to her father saying, David told me he was going to kill me if I didn't help him. Now, remember Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 that says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked, wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Now, this is pretty much a checklist of Saul's life, at least his mindset. Saul was full of pride. Saul was a liar. Saul sought to shed innocent blood by devising wicked plans. He was quick to do evil, and he bore false witness against David by calling him his enemy, and thus he was sowing discord among the brethren. Now, in contrast to the people's choice as king and the man after God's own heart, David's testimony was more like that of Joshua. When in Joshua 1, 8, 9, a pair of famous verses were told, the Lord said to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it when you have time. You shall meditate in it how often? Day and night. Let the word be your guide, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then, here's God's omnipotent power based on obeying his word. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you, Everywhere he has time to go with you. No, he's with you where? Wherever. you. Do you believe that tonight? That the Lord is with you tonight? Good. David was a man of the word. And he would write about the same thing when he penned Psalm 1, the preface psalm, so to speak. That about meditating on the word day and night. And speaking of a man who is blessed, a person 
who is blessed, being like a tree planted by rivers of water. David was a man who sought to observe what is written in God's word. And wherever David went and whatever David did, he prospered in it. Now, here's our takeaway. Here's our point of personal application in the midst of our own battles and the woes and the trials of life. Listen, no enemy, say no enemy. No enemy plot or plan can prevail over God's promises or power. No enemy plot or plan can prevail over God's promises or power. Now, the Lord told David he was going to be king through Samuel. And David was going to be king. Whatever God says is a promise. Amen? Because it cannot become voided out by any effort of the enemy. And David would be king no matter what Saul plotted, no matter what Saul planned, no matter what he devised, no matter how wrongfully Saul viewed David or what he said about him to others. Saul was powerless against the promise and power of God in David's life. Now listen, this is true for you and I as well. The weapons formed against us will not prosper. Amen? God said we can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. That means we can quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. The Lord said the very gates of hell would not prevail against his church, and that's exactly what it means. Do you believe those things tonight? Well, then we're free to live like they're true. Now, in 3 John 1, 2, and 4, the apostle writes, Beloved, I pray that you may, what's the next word? Prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, those who have come to faith in Christ through his preaching, walk in what? Truth. Where do we find truth? Absolute truth, absolute moral and spiritual truth. We find it in God's word because the Bible says the entirety of God's word is truth. Therefore, walking in truth will allow us to prosper in spite of the enemy's plots and plans. Now, remember, prosperity isn't limited to material things that some would like to promote today. And the fact is, we will prosper over the plots and plans because we have promises and divine power within us because of our relationship with Jesus. Now, another little interesting tidbit here, Michael lied to protect David. Does that mean that the Bible is condoning lying when it's necessary? Some have gone to say, uh, as far as to say that. But we have to remember that because the Bible records something doesn't mean the Bible condones something. The Bible is just recording a historical fact. Michael lied to protect David. Now, the Bible also deals, I hear, this aggravates me when I hear it. I'm sure it does you too. People saying, well, the Bible endorses slavery. Where? The only thing the Bible does is recognize that slavery was a part of Roman culture and it told slaves how to act and it told masters how to act, just like the rest of us with employee and employer relationships are supposed to have the same type of attitude. It was dealing with something that was cultural, but it wasn't an endorsement. Now, think about it. What would we do in the same situation? Tell your neighbor what you would do. Would you lie to No, don't tell your neighbor anything like that. Now, listen. This is a tough question, but I think we all know the answer. Now, God is against lying. Revelation 21.8 says all liars, that means habitual unrepentant liars, will be cast into the lake of fire. God is against murder. The Bible says no murder. Murderer has eternal life in him, meaning one who is unrepentant again or doesn't confess that their sin, uh, their murder was sin. Now, we know there's no such thing as a white lie. Hello? Right? A lie's a lie, right? Now, God had no part in telling Michael to lie. And she obviously had some spiritual issues of her own because she had a household idol, the teraphim, that was an object of worship. Now, we can rest assured it didn't belong to David because David was a man after God's own heart at this point. But I want to talk a little bit more about this rather interesting proposal here in our last section about lying to protect somebody else. And is it necessary? I think there's situations people have often described where somebody's chasing someone by uh, you and they've got a knife in their hand and the person they described ran by first five minutes ago and they're hiding behind the trash can. Somebody says, hey, did you see somebody run by here? They're wearing a red jacket and a blue hat. I can't tell a lie. They're right over there. And people have proposed that situation. And I think we all know what we would do 
in it, but don't tell Officer Mike down here that. Now, 18 to 24, let's read ahead and finish our chapter. Now, so David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now, it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Seku. And he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Indeed, they are at Naoth and Ramah. So he went there to Naoth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Second time we've heard that question posed. Now, a little background. Naoth is a Hebrew word for residence. And because it's used here as a proper name and not just a noun, that tells us that what's in view is a house that the students of Samuel stayed in. And that's where David fled to, and that's where he was staying with Samuel, with those who were under the tutelage of Samuel in Ramah. Upon David's arrival, he reports to Samuel everything that Saul had been doing. And what follows is one of the most bizarre and perplexingly interesting scenes, I think, in all the Bible. Saul finds out that David is at the residence of the students. And he sends a group of messengers to apprehend David. The messengers had the same commission, the same directive that they did as the ones posted at David's house to kill him. So Saul sent a group of messengers to kill David. Samuel does not lie. He does not say he is not here. Samuel stands over a group of young men who are prophesying. Now the word prophesying means to speak under divine influence. And it doesn't imply necessarily or even require the foretelling of the future, like prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, and Isaiah would do. It simply means to speak by inspiration of God to and for the glory of God. These men were praising God under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit, and the messengers wound up doing the same thing. Now, Saul sent another group to apprehend David, and they prophesied. Then he sent a third group, and they too prophesied. Then finally, Saul himself goes, and he inquires of where Samuel and David are. He goes to the residence of the students of Samuel. Then the Spirit of God comes upon him also. Saul stripped down, likely to his undergarments for some reason, Naked can, the Hebrew word translated as naked can mean either completely bare or it can mean partially naked. And he lay down all day and night, prophesied before Samuel as the three groups of messengers did before him. Now we all understand why that happened, so we can move on. Now, let me give you a reminder of something we'll set up our point. Another familiar story. We've heard the name Cyrus mentioned a lot and assigned to uh, the president of the United States that he is like King Cyrus of Persia for such a time as this as it relates to Israel. Now listen to what was said to a pagan king, the king of Persia, regarding the plight of God's exiled people and the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah the prophet said in 45, 11 to 13, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, that's a messianic title, and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And again, he's speaking to Cyrus. And concerning the work of my hands, you command me, I have made the earth and created man on it. My hands stretch out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord says, To a Persian king, a pagan king, I made the earth and everything on it. I'm going to direct your paths. I'm going to guide you to build my city and let my people go free without any price or ransom. Now, that's exactly what happened. 
Ezra says in Ezra 1-2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. He has, what's the next word? He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now Cyrus, king of Persia, was being directed by God. Saul, the people's choice for king of Israel, was seeking to kill David, but was overwhelmed by God's presence and power and began to prophesy or speak under the compulsion of the Spirit to and for God to bring him glory. Now, here's the takeaway I think we need to recognize in such a time as this. Listen, God's manifested power is not dependent upon belief in him. God's manifested power is not dependent upon belief in him. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, and he is the uh, absolute and universally sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, whether somebody believes that's true or not. See, belief in him is irrelevant to who God is. God is still all-powerful. People seem to be under the impression today that if they don't believe that God is all-powerful, he can't do anything, and they handcuff him, in essence, from moving or doing anything, or I just don't believe he's there, so therefore he isn't. But he is. He is everywhere. God isn't limited by whether someone believes in him or not. God is not limited by human hate. God is not limited by denial of existence. God is not limited because he's God. And back to our previous section. In our proposal concerning Michael's lie, did Michael's lie really spare David's life? Or could the same thing that happened in Ramah have happened to David's house? Could there have been a directing of the spirit? Or was the Lord just going to let his word be broken and let David be hunted down and be killed? Of course, we know that's not true because God had made a promise. Now, remember this about our omnipotent God from Isaiah 40, 12, and 18 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, meaning from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the pinky, calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. And are counted as a small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Listen. God doesn't have to be believed in or even believed to manifest his power. He is not limited by rebellious world today. He is not limited by all the things we see going on in high levels of government today. Listen, listen this morning or this evening, this afternoon, whatever it is, listen. God is not hindered because the governor of California is his adversary. God is not limited because this state is advancing immorality like no other state in the country. God is not limited. God is not hindered. It doesn't have to be that the whole state believes in him and then he's going to move. Listen, he moves on behalf of the remnant. He moves on behalf of a few. And if there's only 7,000 in the great state of California who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, that's enough for God to move on their behalf. So listen, don't give up. Don't give up in these last days. Don't give up when things seem to be turning against us and the church is being handcuffed by legislatures around our country today. And uh, abortion is growing even as it's being fought in some states in our country. And immorality is being promoted as normality even down to the kindergarten level Don't be dismayed because of these things. Our God is able to move whether he's believed in or not. He is the omnipotent God. Now, Saul 
was a living abomination when compared to the things the Lord hates. He was guilty of all the six things the Lord hates and the seven that are abomination to him. He was trying to kill the man after God's own heart. He was going to kill his own son for breaking a foolish vow or an oath he put the people under that Jonathan was ignorant of. Even though the people stopped him and said, nobody dies today. But it didn't matter how evil Saul was, how he plotted and planned against David. If God says, strip down to your undergarments and prophesy, that's exactly what you're going to do. And listen to what David would write about this season of life in the Psalms. The heading for Psalm 59, which is about this very scene. The header says to the chief musician, set to the tune of Do Not Destroy of Mitchum, meaning a song sung by sopranos, of David. When Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Psalm 59 is about this chapter that we read tonight. David said this in 1 to 4. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and be whole. Then, at the end of the chapter, David would write in 14 to 17, And at evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your what? Your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. You see, that's who he is for us. That's who he is for us in our times of great trials and attacks from the enemy. Now, I've said this many times before, and I'll say it many times in the future. I don't know why God allows what he does sometimes. I don't know why hard and tragic things come into the life of people who love and serve him. But I do know he's in control all the time. I don't know the criteria by which God makes his decisions. I don't know how he determines when one is prayed for and they are healed and one is prayed for and they are not healed and die. I don't know how God makes his decisions, but I do know he knows all. Now, This I also know. His enemies and our enemies cannot prevail against him. They are subject to his commands just as those who believe in him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we know this is true for sure? Well, Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what's the next word? Every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, meaning those who have died and gone to heaven, those alive on earth, and those who are under the earth awaiting the second resurrection, the resurrection of the unsaved dead. And that, what's the next word? Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Of God the Father. Listen, someday, whether they want to or not, someday, whether they believe it or not, everybody is going to bow before Jesus and agree with God that he is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And everybody means everybody. That means the unbelieving dead. When they stand before the great white throne, they are going to bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords and acknowledge that he is Lord And Christ, whether they believed in him in this life or not. But the problem is their confession will be too late. It will be a forced confession, a forced bowing. But those who bow now are going to be part of the first resurrection. That includes a group that is taken in a moment and twinkling of an eye that will forever be with the Lord when they put on a mortal incorruptibility. Now, Can God make unbelievers bow before him, before his son? Can God make non-believers do his will? Well, our chapter says he did that with King Saul, and Isaiah says, and Ezra says, he did it with King Cyrus. Listen, God's power being manifested is not dependent upon belief 
in him. Yes, faith plays a role in our lives. There's no question about that. But Paul told Timothy, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He can't deny his own attributes. He cannot deny that he knows everything. He cannot deny that he is everywhere. He cannot deny that he is all-powerful. And this is our God, our omnipotent God. So listen, I pray that if there are those of you who are passing through the waters tonight, that you'll leave with a bit of a glide in your stride because you understand just who he is a little bit better than when you came. Listen, our God is powerful. Our God is powerful. He is all-powerful. He is incomparable. There's none like him, nothing too hard for him, and he does all things well. I don't understand a lot of it, as I know you don't either, the things he allows and the times where he does what uh, we pray for and the times where his answer is no. I cannot make any of those determinations, but this I know, that there is none like him. And he has no adversary equal to him. And even those who don't believe him are still subject to him. Because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's coming for us soon. Somebody say, amen. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for your word and these reminders tonight. Thank you, Lord, that even as we have followed and will continue to follow the attempts to bring about the death of David, you said he'd be king of Israel. And he's going to be. You said he was a man after your own heart, even knowing that he would fail you greatly in the future and give the enemies of God the chance to blaspheme. And yet because you are a God of mercy, you are an omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God. All that you spoke of unto David came to pass. And all that you spoke of unto us will come to pass as well. So Lord, I pray that we would do that which Psalm 121 reminds us to do. Lift our eyes up to the mountain from where our help comes from. Our help comes from heaven, comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Thank you for reminding us to lift our eyes above the moment, above the circumstance, and get them back on the one who does all and can do the things impossible for man. We thank you, Lord, for these reminders tonight. We pray you bless us as we go, that we would heed and live according to them. We pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people agree by saying, Amen. Amen.